have your Bibles open to Colossians. We're going to read our text for today, beginning in verse 24 through 2 through 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Or I pray that you might help me to just clearly speak your word and that your soul be glorified. Amen. You can be seated, of course. It's summertime. I was hoping a few more would be on vacation, make it a little less intimidating. I'm guessing you've got those out of the way already. Um, but uh, good morning. It has been three years since I have last preached. Uh, first time preaching um, under the new pulpit when we first got it three years ago. I was like, Logan, you got to give me one shot at least. <laughs> and uh, he's tried, but I have had things come up and have not been able to um, be here. The last time my wife had brain surgery when I was scheduled. So, um, crazy about the Lord has been gracious to her and us and anyways so it's good to be here but three years is a long time and so I know that we have grown and changed so much I'm sure most of you do not know who I am um, I like most of you I'm a creature of habit and I sit in my four spots every single week only the incredible Mr. Bush has the wisdom and foresight to move his family around to engage with the whole body of Christ. I, I've noticed that, but I am still just sitting in my little spot. So if you're over here, hello, here I am. This is my face. Um, so because of that, I asked Logan, should I, should I give a little word about myself, a little bio? And he said, yeah, do that. And then he wanted me to kind of share a little bit about camp. So I'm trying to weave all these in to then intro my sermon. It will work if you just hang with me. All right, so... Um, I'm, 30, I'm 43 years old, if you're curious. Uh, my wife is Megan. Um, her age is to be kept secret. Uh, we have been married for 18 years. She is everything to me. It's the emotions. It's the fear. Um, the Lord has blessed us with each three children, Naomi, uh, she's 17, she'll be a senior. Kate is 15, he'll be a sophomore. 
and Jonas is 12, and he'll be a seventh grader, all of which have come to know and trust Christ here. Here. Been baptized here because of the faithful music and preaching from this pulpit. And I praise to God for that. And when I say music, two of them, it was music. It was music that God used. I taught, at a, um, I taught um, at a Christian school for almost three years, beginning in 2002, right off of college, down in Blue Springs. And then when I found out I was Reformed, um, that ended. Long story. Uh, I then proceeded to go to Midwestern to sure up my Calvinism, got humbled a little bit, and graduated in 2009. On seminary, I took my first youth gig and have been in uh, ministry almost ever since for a total of 15 years. 15 of those in uh, youth ministry and two and a half as a senior pastor slash still youth pastor at a small church in Independence. It's a long story as well. If you were to ask me 20 years ago if I would have ever been a youth pastor, I would have said, no, I do not believe in the validity and the biblicalness, if that's a real word, of youth ministry. I would have told you that. If you were to ask me 15 years ago, having just completed my master's in biblical languages and serving as a youth pastor, long story, blame my wife, I would, if I would still be a youth pastor at the age of 43, to be honest here, I'm an old man, my response would have been laughter and not a chance. That's a tad too old, and though fruitful, more of a stepping stone to greater endeavors in ministry. And then, if you were to ask me seven months ago, how it was going, I would have told you this. I think I won out. I'm trying to figure out how to make that happen. But here's what's crazy. If you were to ask me today, if you were to ask me today, how does it feel to be you pastor at 43? Um, how are things going? How are you enjoying ministry? I would say this. I'm humble thankful, overjoyed, encouraged, and energized. So what happened? Well, I will say, last year, last year at school and youth group was a rough one for me, probably one of my roughest years in ministry, and it's hard to really wrap my head around why. I think it comes down, I didn't feel like my ministry was fruitful. It didn't seem like I, I was making inroads, seemed like it just wasn't, it seemed like the culture was weird, it was, the, the fruit was not there, and I, I began to think, man, I am ineffective. My message is getting old. Style is getting old. I've lost my mojo. You are 43. You can't connect anymore. It's time. It's, it, it's, time, it's time to bail out of one of those. And that led me into camp, and I'm thinking, man, I was not looking forward to camp. Jimmy knew it, my confidant. He, you know, he admit, you know, we were both kind of a little weird and down a little bit, and I was like, well, here we go. 
got 70-something coming. The money's been paid. So if we're going to do it, let's do it. And we like to do it right. Our camp isn't the normal camp. We're not throwing sticks in the fire. We're not calling down people to get saved. We're preaching the word. We pick a book of the Bible. We go through it. Two 40-minute lessons to an hour a day with small groups, small part of the Psalms, devotions, and then, yeah, a lot of free time. But it's Bible-heavy and worship-heavy because that's what changes lives. And so we picked Philippians as our book. And we talked about partnership for the gospel, advancement and unity, and giving all for Christ. And I'm telling you, I don't use the word revival loosely. I don't like the word revival. It gets a little scary, but revival happened. I've never seen anything like it. And it wasn't me. It was me, Jimmy. It was the first time where I employed many of my youth leaders. Connor spoke, Jimmy spoke, I spoke, and then John Stewart, who was once one of us, who's now in Gower, all spoke. spoke through Philippians, and the first night, we began to see these teenagers in tears, and the Lord just working, drawing to himself, repenting of worldliness and apathy, seeing Christ, and it, it did not stop. Small groups would go deep into the night. Groups were skipping free time to be able to meet and discuss and pray. Three came to know Christ and gave confession of opening, got opening their eyes and coming to him. I got home and parents began emailing, texting, what has happened, what's going on? My, my child is different, and, and, and I'm, there's, I'm still getting this. And the groups are meeting and talking and reading their scriptures, and, and, and God brought a change. And I sat there. On the last night of camp, And God said, dude, he didn't say dude. He said, <laughs> he said, I don't need you, Jake. You are, you are a weak and broken, stuttering, crying vessel. You need to humble yourself and just be faithful to what you have been called to do, to carry out your responsibility. And when I work... I will work in my time, in my way. And I stood there in awe and I said, Lord, you have done this. And I said, no more pity party for Mr. Gibbler. And he exposed my pride, my self-dependence. And I'm telling you, I'm more excited than ever to continue to lead, to teach. Had a great team. And... It led me to think here, well, what is my responsibility then? And I think it's your responsibility, and I think it's our elders' responsibility, and it's a responsibility that I kind of want to bring out today and keep those bellies quiet, please. we we, we got a ways to go. I only get this three years, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I only get this three years. So up until camp, my passage for today was going to be Romans 5, 1 through 5. It is a beautiful word about the fruit of our justification by faith, beautiful as you know. But as I thought about camp, the Lord's working, and the reason why this youth ministry exists, the aim of what my ministry as a youth leader is, as a husband, as a father, as a church member should be. And then I thought of FCC as a whole, our pastors, the whole body here. And then I thought about all the craziness around us, the current situations facing the church, believers, young and old in the faith. There are opponents everywhere. 
even from within. Progressive Christians rising up, and they are all belittling the sufficiency of Christ and the Bible, scoffing at the Christian faith, and some even threatening to harm us. Deconstruction is the new word of the day, and countless people who once professed Christ are walking away completely. I teach apologetics to seniors. They are well aware of the scorn, ridicule, and mocking from the outside. On top of that, we have the Bart Eerdmans who are struggling with all their energy, all their energy, to try to demonstrate the foolishness of our faith and trust in an inspired word of God and a Jesus who is fully God and fully man. For many Christians, this can cause uncertainty, as some seniors have expressed to me over the years, and some, sadly, who have walked away themselves. The threat does not end there, though. There's the world and all its pleasures, wisdom, and philosophies. I believe that to be even the biggest threat. Paul, in his last letter to Timothy, writes one of the saddest few lines in all of Scripture, 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So after all that, I changed my text. My desire is to put before us all Paul's goal, his aim, his purpose for ministry, so we might be encouraged, built up, reminded, and empowered to follow in his footsteps. That purpose? Here it is. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's ministry consisted in struggling for the assurance of the saints. It is this ministry that I would like to unpack together with you all today, for I believe it to be ours as well. But before we get into our actual text, we got some ground to cover. And I'm not going to lie, it's a lot of ground, but I believe it to be essential to really unpack this section. And my prayer is that you only enjoy it as much as I did studying it and writing it out. And Paul, Pastor Paul said he went 51 minutes last week, and he said, I can too. So let's start with some of the background. Uh, Paul, three points to the background. We have the city and the church, the problem, and then the letter itself. Colossae uh, is about 120 miles east of Ephesus in the region of Phrygia in Asia Minor, what is now called Turkey. It really was probably the least most important city that Paul wrote to. By the time of the first century, it had really dwindled. They made a new road, and it went over to Laodicea, and they got all the glory, and Colossae was a bunch of agrarian farmers, and the city really had not much impact. Majority of the city, of course, were Gentiles, but in 213 B.C., Antiochus IV shoved 2,000 Jews into the area, so we believe there was a pretty heavy Jewish presence along with the Gentiles, and that does come into sway with this Colossian philosophy invading the church. Paul seems to have never visited this church, um, and it was Epaphras who started it. We read in Acts that all the Jews and Greeks in Asia heard the word of the Lord. So our best guess is Epaphras, while in Ephesus, heard the word of the Lord, got saved, went back home, started a church in Colossae, probably went to Laodicea, started that one, and probably went down to Hierapolis, and we have a whole region of three cities coming to know Christ and churches founded in those cities. I've had the pleasure to visit Colossae and Hierapolis, 
um, and uh, Laodicea with my Greek teacher. And both of those cities are very excavated. They're learning lots about the background and culture. And Colossae is a big, massive mound. You can Google it at home. It's fascinating. It is a huge mound. It has not yet begun to be excavated. But I read in a blog, February 2022, they've already done all the groundwork. They've measured it out, and they're getting ready to uncover that mound. And that's beautiful because it just reveals more about the people and the situation and what was going on there. And so that should be underway as we speak. Um, so pretty cool. But it does make some of the Colossian heresy that we're going to get to a little difficult. So what exactly was it these people were being tempted to follow after? Which leads us to the problem of the letter, the occasion for it. Well, Colossians is one of four epistles he wrote while in prison in about 8060 to 8064-ish. And Epaphras had traveled from Colossae to inform Paul of a grave issue facing the church. A false teaching or philosophy was threatening the church. Some scholars have let it, labeled it the Colossian heresy, as the exact details are slim. The majority believe it at least to be syncretistic, which means it's a mix of two or more religious or philosophical traditions. In short, it really appears that you have Jewish ritualism and paganism or folklore combined into this system that is being pressed onto the Colossians to adhere to. And we can see this, if you open Bible to Colossians 2, we can see some of these aspects. And let's just go through a few of these. We have verse 4. It is the, their goal is to delude, to deceive with arguments of wisdom, and trying to convince them and to remove them from their faith. We see in verse 8, look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive, meaning to carry you off the spoils of war, to capture you and imprison you under their philosophy and human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, probably meaning there is a demonic influence behind this tradition. So they're trying to capture them, delude them. And then verse 16, they're trying to pass judgment on them about food and drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. He's like, they're trying to, to woo them to all this ritualistic observances and, and, and leave them away from Christ. We keep going on. They're not done yet. They're not done at all. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. They're trying to get them to lose the inheritance that they have by insisting on visions and asceticism and the worship or veneration of angels and, and all this puffed up sensual earthly wisdom. And he says, if you do that, you're going to be disqualified. Don't let them disqualify you. Talk about a lot facing this church. And then they want them to don't switch the regulations, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. And in summary, what are they trying to do, folks? They were belittling the sufficiency of Christ and his work while demanding that the Colossians adhere to customs and rituals of the culture, pressuring them to turn from the gospel to works and legalistic practices. You know what they wanted to do? Make Christ look small. Ain't nothing changed. It's not nothing as whatever that word is. Ain't nothing that's better changed. It's everywhere. Just different forms. The same demonic powers are still at work. Those same spiritual forces are still at work. They got one goal. Remove you and me from our faith in Christ. So we struggle. 
we toil, we trust, we depend, we do the work that Paul was so eager to do. So that leads us to the letter, the response. Now, if you've learned anything about Paul, right? You don't mess with his gospel. You don't mess with his Christ. No, 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 no. You do not mess with Paul's gospel and Paul's Christ. Imagine being in that prison room when Epaphras comes in and says, Paul, we got trouble. We got trouble in Colossae. We're being attacked with this weird this system, and our, 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 I don't know where we're at yet. We need help. You see, Paul was a murderer and persecutor of the church, folks. He opposed Christ in every way. Paul had it all from a worldly religious perspective. But when Paul saw the risen Christ, everything changed. He gave up everything. Everything. Every form of self-righteousness so that he might by faith have Christ and his righteousness, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection glory. So I imagine Paul hearing about this philosophy, this human wisdom, and all its rules and regulations meant to deter his people, the body of Christ, from Christ. So what was his response? The most Christ-saturated book in the New Testament. You want to belittle my Savior? You want to belittle his work and his person? Let me raise him to the most cosmic level that I can. And I dare you to move from that. And thank the Lord for that heresy because we have this letter. He puts before our eyes, our hearts, our minds a cosmic Christ, an all-sufficient supreme Christ who is first over all things everywhere in every place and all was made for him. He is the image of the invisible God, redeemer, reconciler, and in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you know him and have put your faith in his person and work, his very life lives in you and is the hope of your own future glory. So let's catch up to our text, shall we? We're going to go on verse Colossians 1. I know I'm freaking you all out, but this is good. Let's just catch up and see where we're at. We see here as, as Paul pens this letter to refute this heresy that is infringing on these beloved believers. He begins with thanksgiving and prayer like he always does. And he gives thanks to God their Father in verse 3. Always, why? For their love and their faith that you have. They have a vibrant faith, a vibrant love, but look at the reason for it. Why? Because of the hope laid up for you. That's, the, that's a key phrase. It's a key word in Colossians, hope. A hope laid up for you, a future hope, a future glory that is there. It's waiting. It's there. And because of that hope that their minds are set on, it fuels their faith and it fuels their love. It's the motivator. The hope is the great motivator he continues to thank them that they have been strengthened by god's glorious might um excuse me he thinks that the gospel is growing and increasing in verse six all around the world he's thanking them that they have been taught and learned and understood the grace of god in truth and you see he repeats truth 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 a huge emphasis that paul says it is the truth the only truth you know the truth you understood the truth the grace of god in truth don't be don't be swayed don't be swayed. Don't be swayed. You heard the truth. You understood it. And I give thanks for that because you believed it. And you're standing 
in it. And then he gets into his prayer after the thanksgiving in verse 9. And so we, the day we heard, we had not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is going to be confusing. He's not referring to the moral will of God about what is right and wrong. But if you read the Colossians, you're going to see the will of God is always attached to understanding and wisdom, which is getting at the mystery, which is the gospel and the work of Christ, that they need to grow in to discern him versus the Colossian heresy. And the result of that will be a life lived worthy. And so we'll see that fleshed out. He wants, this is the key of the letter. He wants them to grow in knowledge of Christ and his work and what God has done, his plan. He prays that they be strengthened by God's glorious might, so that they would persevere in faith in the, in the midst of opposition and heresy, bearing up and doing it all with what? Paul loves it. No matter what you do, you're always going to smile. Well, it's an inner smile, right? It's a joy. It's a joy. So he gives, he's praying that they would, they would persevere in suffering his opposition with joy. Well, what's going to be their source of joy when you're being persecuted and suffering for Christ? Here's why, because he continues, giving thanks. Giving thanks, he says in verse 12, to the Father. Because he's qualified you. He's made you fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the hope. What's the hope? That we share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And I have no clue what that means, but I know it's good. Because light is good. Inheritance is good. With the saints is good. And it's God's. It's coming. And he says, you know why you can have joy and persevere and endure all this? Because you're always thanking God for what he's qualified to, to participate in. An inheritance. Kept away. Undefiled, First Peter, right? Preserved. The hope. The hope. And you're thinking, how in the world? Well, he thinks, he thinks how this happened, too. He's praying, and in the prayer, he's giving thanks. How you can be thanks? Because how can this happen? Well, it's through his beloved son. He's redeemed us. He's released us. We're, we're transferred from one kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light because the God-man came and released us from that kingdom and moved us to his Father's kingdom. How can he do that? Because he redeemed us from our sin, he says. He's forgiven it all. It's all gone. And then you're thinking, the Colossians are thinking, well, that's good, but they're saying do this and that and observe that and observe that and do this to my body and don't eat that. And you said I've been transferred and this and that. Yes, but who can, re can someone really forgive sins, all of them? Can someone really transfer from the kingdom of light to darkness? Can someone really, who can do that? And you know who can do that? 15 through 20, folks. The most beautiful biography that anyone has ever had. You can't touch it. You can't touch it. And it was already read. And you know it. For time's sake, I won't read it. It hurts me. But just know this. I would imagine when Paul was dictating this part to his scribe, I like to imagine a lot. Because Paul dictated his letters. That's why he said, I write the inclusion on my own hand. He dictated. A lot of freedom there, right? We do it too. Just, they had a scribe, we have iPhones. 
I, I am almost positive. After Paul finished verse 20, he dropped his mic. Enough said. Enough said. But you know what? There's still more to be said. He's endless in riches and treasures. And so he don't stop. Got chapter 2. And this leads us, then as we're getting closer to our text, and time is still on my side, I believe, we come to this weird doozy that gets people a little bit confused. Look at it in verse 21. We didn't read this part. Paul thought it was a little too long to keep going. I'm like, I, pro- I probably hear you out there. And he says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh, meaning in his fleshly body, his physical body. As he now turns personal and says, here's what's happened to you. You personally, you were hostile, alien. You were evil, doing bad things. That's why we think the majority of these people were Gentiles. They were wicked, wicked, wicked beings. But you have been reconciled. In order that what Christ might present you to his Father, blameless. That's that gifted righteousness at work. That's that covering. You were, you were completely Worthless and sinful and evil. But the Son reconciled you so that he might present you to his Father pure. Oh, how glorious that truth is, folks. We stand blameless before our Father. And then Paul does something weird, and we don't like it. Especially us Calvinists, we can't handle it. I... He says, if. What? We're elect for the foundation of the world. Perseverance of faith is one of the five tulips. You can't say if. Well, you know what? If what we believe is true, Paul was one, and he can still say if, and we got to just allow it. Because he's writing to people who he doesn't know who are of faith, and there's always a temp- it's just it, it, it gets a little confusing, but well, let's just let him speak. He gives this weird doozy, if. If, indeed, you continue in the faith. Perseverance is the sign of genuine faith. The sign that you are elect is your persevering faith. But he still feels the need to warn them, if, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That word hope comes up again. Don't shift from the hope again. It's all forward-looking. We look down so much. We look down so much. It's the hope we don't shift from. It's as if indeed. Now that if indeed, most commentators believe it's it's an evoke of confidence. It should be read like this. If, as I'm sure you will. We see that confidence in 2.5 as we read already. He is confident that he will, but as a a lover of his people, he's still reminding them that you must persevere. In faith. That's why Paul wrote the letter. One commentator said it like this. God does indeed, by his grace and through his spirit, work to persevere his people so that they will be vindicated in the judgment. But at the same time, God's people are responsible to persevere in the faith if they expect to see that vindication. And so it is in this continuing, persevering in the faith, that matters most to Paul. He wants his people to persevere in the faith. I'm telling you guys, 
you could probably name many people who've wandered and, lo- and left. Some you believe who are really still Christians and are, are in a weird state of life. Some who have just given it all away. I, I, I made the mistake of Googling deconstruction. Who's deconstructing? You just see the list, you're like... And you read it and you're like, but you wrote that, and you said that, and you did this. What in the world? And then I read one from a guy who worked at Desiring God. And I, I read his interview and his report about his leaving of the faith. And it broke my heart. Because page after page he wrote about Christianity just made him feel worthless and have to mortify the flesh and repent and feel like you're unworthy and this and that. And you know what he never mentioned in all those words? He never, ever, ever mentioned Christ. And I was like, brother, what have you missed? What have you missed? Because in Christ you have been filled. You have been made righteous. And your mortification is just pure love for him. He had missed Christ. Didn't word drop him one time. So now we come to our text. Our text can be divided up in three ways. We're going to see Paul's mission, his message, and his struggle. And it's here where Paul begins his ministry, explains his ministry, and then verse 1 through 5 applies it directly to them. And why? Here's the the whole goal. He wants to encourage them to withstand the false teaching and maintain their adherence to the true gospel bound up in Christ. And that ministry was important to Paul, and I believe it is our ministry as well. So let's be reminded of it, encouraged in it. We see here first in verse 24 and 25. I'm going to be, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. Meaning his ministry is God specifically chose Paul, we know before the foundation, excuse me, before he was born in Galatians, to be a chosen vessel to steward the gospel and take it to the nations. He was given this charge by God. And then he says something interesting here, to make the word of God fully known. And in Greek it literally is this, to fill, fulfill the word of God. To fill up and fill the word of God. You're like, what does he actually mean here? Well, a few hints we see in a couple other passages where he uses the same language. Um, Romans 15, 19. By the power of science and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Then in 2 Timothy 4, 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. And it seems like what he's saying here is, I have been tasked to finish my assignment to take the gospel to the nations all across the known world. That was his commission. And we see here, he then calls, look at what he calls the word of God. In verse 26, he calls it the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
He calls the word of God the mystery. That's so mysterious, isn't it? So fascinating that Paul uses this word. He does it a lot in Ephesians too. The mystery revealed. The mystery. But look about it. It was hidden. Because a mystery is something that cannot be revealed outside of divine revelation. And in God's sovereignty and planning and wisdom, this was how he went about getting across his good news and his plan. He kept it hidden, really, from the beginning of time. And only revealed it in hints and shadows and in prophecies. Until Christ came and resurrected. And Paul and the apostles got taught by Christ. And God said, let me, let me, let me move the curtain. And it shocked every single Jew. And most Jews wouldn't take it. But the Jews who saw it, their Christ only got bigger. God's love only grew bigger. Because God unveiled the mystery that he had kept hidden for thousands and thousands of years. And this mystery is what God said, Paul, you get the task to suffer for my name and for my body, and you're going to go to the nations, to the Gentiles, and proclaim to you the mystery. Which leads us to the message of the mystery. You see, Israel, by this time, had no grasp of God's plan for the Gentiles. By this time, they were dogs, uncircumcised, unclean, outside of God's favor and blessing. They could not have been further from the truth, because Paul comes on the scene. Peter comes on the scene. And Paul's got a gospel to share, and look what he says it is. Verse 27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Ready? First of all, do you love how he says the riches of the glory? He don't want you to miss it. The riches of the glory, meaning it is unsurpassable in its wealth, its meaning, and what it bestows upon those who are partakers of it is rich. And what is it? Don't let this, don't, don't let this settle too lightly because you know what it is already, right? Let the heart be refreshed. Is Christ in you? Is Christ in you? Is Christ in you? It's not just Christ in you. It's Christ in you Gentiles. It's Christ in us Gentiles. We didn't have all that Israel had. Remember Romans? We were outside of the covenants, outside of the law, outside of the, yeah, Israel was supposed to be like to the nations, and they didn't. God came to Abraham, called Abraham, and through them blessed that nation. Yes, he welcomed the Gentile, but Israel honed it in. And God's like, you've been wrong the whole time. My whole plan always unveiled is Christ in Gentiles. Christ among the nations. I ain't holding back on anyone. Christ, through his spirit, dwells in and among us and gives us completeness, fullness, and God's life in us and his work applied to us, which he'll unpack in chapter 2 in a beautiful way. Guys, ladies, the hope of glory is Christ in you. 
And because he dwells among us and in us, that is hope for sure. You can guarantee that glory is yours too. Don't move from your faith. Don't shift to something else. Don't wander off. Because you have Christ in you, the hope of your future glory. It's a guarantee. Ephesians unpacks the mystery differently a little bit in three ways. He says this, the mystery is, your fellow heirs with the Jews, your fellow members with Christ's body with the Jews, and your fellow partakers of the Spirit with the Jews. Ha! We all together in this. That's a great triad. That's the mystery, folks. It's all ours. Because we have all of Christ. I mean, can you imagine? Like, that's Paul's message. He's loving it. No wonder he rejoices. Beat me all you want. This is my message. This is my message. I get to share this. We get to share this. It is this knowledge that he wants them to understand and be filled with, to stand firm in. Now you have verse 24. Uh, yep, I skipped it for a reason. It's really confusing. The point is this. He rejoices in his sufferings. I think the best commentator that I believe gets it right says this, basically. When he says, I rejoice in my sufferings, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, a very confusing verse. I think Garland said it best. He said this, Christ's sufferings are not lacking or incomplete. It is Paul's own experience of Christ's afflictions which are lacking. So as he suffers, he is sharing in Christ's sufferings, and in a sense, Christ continues to suffer in his body. Or, or another way you could say it is, Paul's physical suffering as a member of Christ's body represents Christ's continuing suffering for the world through his servants. So as we suffer, Christ suffers through his body, and we fill up what is lacking because he's not physically here, but we are. It's the best option, I think. You're going to do your own research. The point is this. Don't worry about it. You're going to suffer. It's Christ's sufferings, and he rejoices because it's worth it. It's worth it. Our suffering is worth it. Our struggle for assurance is worth it. Our toil is so worth it. And so we get to a struggle. Paul's struggle for the world. We come to our last part. How serious does Paul take this commission? How committed is he to his message? But even more, how committed is he to the church, the body of Christ? We know he is committed, as it all seems to bring its in suffering and persecution. And so this, I believe, this toil is where I see Paul's heart most beautifully and where I want to model Paul and follow his example. And this is where God led me to as I reflected on my task as a minister to the students here at FCA, to my family, to FCC, this struggle. And we begin in verse 28. Him we what? Proclaim. So warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. What a powerful couple verses there. I mean, can you not sense the energy there, the toil, the struggle? And he's going to repeat struggle right in chapter 1. And in three verses, you have two struggles and one toil. This is not easy for Paul. The opposition he's facing... The rejection from the Corinthians he faced. The constant battering, imprisonment. He's like, I toil to do one thing. Proclaim Christ. Proclaim Christ. 
And he does it in two ways, he says. He warns and he teaches. Warning, I believe, goes to warning unbelievers to repent. The judgment's coming, Christ. And he's also warning believers. We see in Colossians and Galatians and Corinthians. He's warning his own people as he writes. His job is to warn unbelievers and his people, his churches, do not move from your faith. Do not go to a different Christ, a different gospel. There's no reason to do that because I proclaim to you a crucified, risen, glorified, self-sufficient, supreme, all-sufficient, glorious God. And then he says, I not only warn, but I teach. He teaches everyone with all wisdom. And that's what he's going to do here in chapter 2. That's what he did in chapters 1, 15 through 20. What did he do? He taught them about Christ. You want to move from Christ? You're being tempted to move from Christ? Let me tell you about Christ. And let me tell you about your death and burial and resurrection with Christ in chapter 2. And then go to Galatians, Ephesians. In Ephesians, he opened up the blessings that come from Christ. See what he's doing there? For some reason... He doesn't just say, Jesus loves you, and that's enough. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. But oh, no, 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 no. Paul teaches how Jesus loved you, why he loved you, what it means he loved you, how he can keep loving you, his goal in loving you. You see, to him, he's filling us up with the knowledge of Christ. Philippians 1, or Colossians 1, 9, so they would understand God's will and plan and what he has done and who his son is, so they will not be moved. Not swayed by one word of philosophy. Not one word from Bart. Not one word from the progressives. Not one word from the haters. We will not be persuaded. And I love that his key word is everyone. He don't just pick a few people. He does it to everyone. Now why? He says everyone three times. Do you catch that? Three times. He's emphasizing that for a reason. We don't know why, except maybe this Colossian heresy had a little bit of secret specialness to it. The secret club. You want in on the philosophy? We don't know. But he's like, no, no, no. Not my gospel. Not my Christ. I want to teach everyone. You know what that means for you? Ain't no one here. Outside of everyone. Ain't no one. Don't you dare think today that you are outside of everyone. No matter what you've done, what you've been. He says everyone. He means everyone. It's that good. He's that good. He is that good of a father and a son. We need to remember that. It's for everyone out there. I need to remember that. No exclusions. What's his goal in this warning and this teaching? This toil. Look what he says. So that he might present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. And that can be a little confusing. Mature, some of your Bibles might say perfect. Perfect, you think of perfect, perfect righteous. He's not getting at a perfect righteousness that we live perfectly. He's getting at perfect in understanding, perfect in assurance. It's a completeness idea that they are so fully swayed and assured in Christ that they will not move, and that when Christ comes, they will be blameless. 
we got to keep it in context to the issue at charge here. The issue is there, Jesus is being attacked. He says, no, I want to present you complete in Christ. You need to know he is everything for you, and so you will not be swayed. And that's my goal. So I will unpack and unpack more of this Jesus, more of this Jesus, and remind you again and again of who he is for you and what he has done so that I might present you complete. And at that day, you are found blameless because your faith is in Christ and in Christ alone and has not wavered. But look at the beauty, because we're all thinking, man, this is a lot of work. Oh, it's a lot of work, folks. But we're reformed for a reason. I toil, struggling with all his energy. That he powerfully works within me. It's all God. It's all God. I imagine Paul just toiling and sweating and this, that, and he's like, you know what? I am fueled by God. It is his power at work. He gives me the energy, the motivation. It's all, always, always God and grace centered. So he toils. That word toil, man, I mean, that word toil isn't to mess around with. I mean, it means he exerts himself. He's weary and tired. He's spiritually, I mean, it is a, a striving, a fighting that Paul is doing for these churches. And then he says to struggle. Here, it's an it's a intense striving with opposition in front of him. And we see this word struggle or toil six times in Scripture. Let me give you one. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on our living God. That's Timothy, never leaving that hope, right? 1 Timothy 6, 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Toil, same word. Take hold of eternal life. And then look at Paul's last line, maybe in all of Scripture. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And listen to this, I have kept he never wavered. And you think in that moment when Demas left, you're like, oh, Demas just left me. Really? All we've been through? All my teaching and warning? How did Demas leave? I don't know. That's crazy. But how did Judas betray Jesus? We don't know the heart, so we proclaim the truth. We proclaim the truth till we die that Christ is everything. And that was Paul's goal. And he continues to drive it in real personal. He goes real personal with these people who he's never seen. Ah, what a man. When he says imitate him, imitate him. It's okay, because he imitates Christ. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. So his struggle continues for the Laodiceans and for all those at Laodicea, for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts, three things he struggles for, their hearts may be encouraged, strengthened, that they being knit together in love, and that they would reach all the riches of full understanding, of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery. Connect that to Colossians 1 9. They basically explain each other. So, what? He wants them to be strengthened in heart. He wants them to be knit together in love, which is fascinating. Fascinating. Why are you focusing now on the body being knit together in love? We'll go to verse 2 real quickly. Go to 2. Verse 19. 
and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body nourished and knit together. See that word knit? See what he's done there? He's unpacked what he means there, knit together in love into and just what I read, knit together in love through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Here's his point. Our assurance and perseverance depends on our knitness together as together we hold on to Christ and together we fuel each other with truth. And we don't waver. We don't falter. It's beautiful. It ain't an individual thing. It's a people thing. It's a church thing. And it's awesome. And I fight, Colossians, so that you would be knit together in love. That you, you would have all the rich, you know that word riches? He loves it. The riches of understanding. Because when you leave every Sunday from here, do you not experience this, my people? God's people, excuse me, my people. My friends, that's better. Do you not, after hearing Brother Logan toil over the sermon and Gardner leading us in worship and Pharaoh, dude, I leave fully assured. And it's rich what it does to my soul. That's what he's getting at. We come to be fully assured every Sunday, confident in the work of Christ. That's Paul's aim. That is our aim. Because why? Why him? Because look at verse 3, and we're so done. In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in him. All the riches, the treasures, the wisdom is wrapped up in one person. He is all that is needed for this life and the life to come. God is known through Christ. Creation is known through Christ. Salvation is known through Christ. Glory is known through Christ. Our benefits are known through Christ. Our perseverance is known through Christ. Our love is known through Christ. It's all in him. You want to know God and what is the goal of all life? You know Christ. Stop searching anywhere else. Know Christ. So in summary, we see here, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you. I don't want you to be deceived by fancy arguments because they're trying. Then look at his confidence. It's his confidence in the word of God. It's his confidence in the spirit of God in them. He says this, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. They are doing well right now, and he's confident that they will continue through God's work and in the word that he had written them. So what about us? How do we apply this, this um, message to us? And I just got a few things, if I might say. I don't know how long I've gone. I think I'm about 40, right? Um, right? Am I at 51 yet? There's always a timer. Who's got the timer? Am I at 51 yet? Say it. It's okay. He just said amen. Did you just say keep going? Okay. I hope I'm not at 51 yet. So just give me a few. What about us, right? What can we take from this passage? What does it mean for us to understand and apply this passage? I, I want to just share a few things. First, guys, gals, we got to be a people who give thanks. Six times in this letter, six times he says, give thanks, be thankful, have thankfulness. Six times. And it's always about the hope and what God has done for you. We got to give thanks all the time. All the time. It is the secret to joy to contentment, giving thanks. And we give thanks 
not because our food, which is great, because your food might not come. You give thanks because you've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's what you give thanks for. Because you will feast with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what you give thanks for. Second, we must be a people who set our minds on the things above. Colossians 3, as it begins to apply this. That's where our hope is. It's hidden with Christ in God. Who we are is wrapped up and hidden with him, and it's waiting up there, so we set our minds on that hope. Not on the hope down here. It will fail you. And three, kind of the main emphasis of my message is we must toil and struggle through God's power. To fill our minds and our hearts with Christ. To grow in Christ as persons work his sufficiency. To put before each other's Christ. That we would be assured, confident, unwavering. And I have to stop really quickly and just thank my pastors. I don't know how much pastors get thanked enough. But when they're faithful, they should be thanked tremendously and loved well. And I think we do that well here. But I must thank our elders for their faithfulness. They toil and struggle for your faith. And Logan, especially you, brother. Because I had to write this one myself, and it ain't easy. Everything's gone. Ask the wife. You're gone. It's hard. Just a spiritual battle, everything about it. So Logan, Paul, Mr. Bush... I know you labored. Oh, thank you. I pray that you are encouraged to continue to toil and struggle for us in the Word. Because it is not easy. So thank you. Fathers, I think you get the same idea. Make your Christ big to your children. Moms, you too. You're with him all day. Make him known. Make him big. Make him supreme. Make him sufficient. Make him everything. And when you fail, make him the great forgiver. That's the greatest lessons. Brothers and sisters, small groups, conversation, text, we do it to one another. We make Christ known to each other. We encourage. We build up. I got many men like Jimmy who are good for me. Mr. Sean. So many more weeks over there. It gives me the rough edge, and I love it and need it. The goal of all our ministries, thank you, leaders. You toil, you struggle. Your role might be not preaching the word of God, but it's in the back scenes. The Lord sees it, and he delights in it, and you're part of what we're here to keep us assured in Christ. And to my youth leaders, got the best youth leaders in this church. They toil, they struggle, and they love it. Thank you. How about the singing? You see, here's the thing. We don't just assure one another through, through teaching and warning. Look at Colossians 3. I'm almost done. 
Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to the hearts. This is another means of assuring one another. It's the music. He hasn't forgotten that. Thank you, youth leaders, music leaders who do that. And then for the woman, it's normally that, that woman, it's normally the older woman or the older man whose struggle, your struggle is different. He has not forgotten you. For look about what he says to Epaphras in your struggle. For I bear witness that Epaphras, that he has worked hard in 413, and for those in Laodicea, struggling on your behalf in his prayers. There's another part to the struggle. It's on your knees. So thank you, the faithful prayer warriors who pray continually that we might be assured your prayers are part of the struggle. If those in our midst deconstruct or leave the faith, may it be from preaching that was Christ-centered, gospel-saturated, true to the Word of God, upholding the supremacy and sufficiency of a glorious Christ. And lastly, for the one who is here who has not yet come to Christ, remember, Paul said, everyone, will you humble yourself today and seal it in Christ? All the riches and wisdom are in him. He alone can save you and offers you all of himself and a future with him and all the saints in his kingdom. Come to him today. Lord, I just thank you for this letter. It is glorious like all your word is. God, I thank you for Christ. Lord, I forgot to say this last thing to remember that we are complete in Christ. We are complete in Christ. He has filled us with himself. We have died, buried, and risen with him. And I pray that we would be so satisfied and realize who Christ is, that we would live in an assurance and a confidence and unwavering faith. And may we walk then worthy of you. And may we build into one another, being knit together in love, that we might continue to reach the assurance of who Christ is and all he has done. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.